As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. This is a podcast from The Times, sports newspaper of the year. Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. And this week, I'm going to waste no time reminding my panel that I thought this title race was still on, even with an eight-point gap. Because yes, because I am a savant. So who is that panel this week? Well, it's Stuart Robson, Rory K. Smith, and of course, Matt Dickinson. Later on, we'll be looking at Team GB and the Olympic football team. But let's start at Old Trafford. All right, Manchester United and Everton. I am. Uh, I thought this was a, a very unusual game with with sort of lots of ebbs and flows and lots of very good goals. But Stuart, I, I'm still left with the fact that United conceded four goals at home to to an Everton team that you know was coming off a very disappointing um, FA Cup semi final. How does that happen? Well, I give credit to David Moyes because everyone expected Everton to go there and play with one up front, five in midfield and play on the counter-attack. They didn't do that right from the first whistle. They pressed Manchester United. They didn't let De Gea throw it out to the back players and Manchester United didn't know how to cope for a while. And there was great movement from Jelovic. Fellaini played as a second centre forward. I thought he was absolutely outstanding. And Pienaar kept on rotating his position from central midfield into wide areas. And all three of those players were a creative force for Everton. And despite no Leighton Baines, what the other seven guys kind of actually, sat Dis- back. yeah, no, Distan got forward as well from left back. Osman tucked in and made good runs. The two midfield players passed negatively, uh, Neville and Gibson, but those four in front of them, I thought, played exceptionally well. Dicko, is that is, does that pretty much photograph it for you? Is it is it that simple? Well, no, I mean, I think praise to Everton, as Stuart says, but I mean, the more the more I look at those the, the last two goals um, that Everton scored, the more I'm just dumbfounded by how static um, the, not just United defence but the midfield is I mean you look at Everton there I mean A they're sitting deep I mean they're almost on their own penalty spot and B there is not a single player even attempting to close someone down I mean it's, it's almost like a training ground exercise both goals where you just see Everton players passing between each other no attempt to, to snap at them to close them down to harass I mean it, it, it's a laughable defending not, not just from the defence but from the midfield too you see Skulls and Carrick are, are pretty much um, just sort of stood there on the 18-yard line, sort of you know challenging Everton to pass around them, which which they duly do. Roy, uh, I want to you know I want to get to you in a minute, but since we're picking on individual mistakes by veteran professional footballers, let's turn to the professional footballer among us, Stuart. What goes to help help me understand, right? Because this is Paul Scholes, it's Rio Ferdinand, it's Michael Carrick, it's it's, it's Johnny Evans. These guys are people who, you know, beyond the obviously have paid a lot of money and so on, and were also on a good run and had plenty of reason to be confident and they're playing for something. How do they all just kind of switch off at once? I, with, with Fellaini's volley, it looked like the guy was like three yards away from him. Uh, how, does that, how does that happen with a veteran player who, who, who's actually on a good run? 
Well, I think they, they when they were 4-2 up, when they were 3-1 up, they thought the game was won. And when you look at Scholes and Carrick, both are exceptional pass of the ball, but both lack athleticism. They both lack defensive qualities. And I was really disappointed with Ferdinand yesterday. He took up some terrible positions. Sometimes he went to close down in midfield and the ball was played behind how him. How does that happen, though? I mean, because we're not talking... I wonder how much defensive work, and I, and I see it for, throughout the Premier League, how much defensive work is now being done by coaches. They, because... They want to keep the players happy these days, managers and coaches, and they do a lot of technical play. They do a lot of five-a-sides, small-sided games, let the players play. But I don't see good defensive coaching these days. I don't see good defensive strategies. You don't... You don't. I mean, when Ferdinand made a couple of decisions in the first half and Johnny Evans backed off, there was great big spaces for Jelovic to run into. And, I, and when I look at that, there is no basic strategy coming from the, from the defensive coaches at the moment. Roy, you're nodding. I'm assuming you agree. I am, although, although I've got to say, the one player that I'd have, I'd have picked on particularly don't like picking on individuals Raphael for the fourth mm-hmm. goal the, it, foreign guy, see? the ball watching is is incredible and the first the, but the, the fourth one it's 4-3 you fight what five minutes to hold on get a win that you know pretty much leave, leaves the title in your own hands Fellaini's difficult to hit the ball often understand that he can hold off with, I think it might have been Ferdinand the central defender understand that fine big lad Raphael just watches Stephen Pienaar walk, not sprint, walk maybe slightly jarred to the edge of the six-yard box and doesn't track him, which is, I mean, it's unforgivable. Um, we don't just want to pick on United's defensive mistakes also because they had, I mean, I think they kept clean sheets in six of their seven previous games, something like that. Uh, and while I was a source to say, like, guys don't get too excited, they, they look that good to me against, you know, against Fulham and, and against Blackburn and so on. Defensively, at least, it looked as if, you know, Evans and Ferdinand, much maligned perhaps by some early in the season, were doing the job. But you can, you can spin the figures however you want because... This has still been the season now that United have conceded the most goals at Old Trafford in the Premier League and all all through the season. What a lot of the top clubs do, when they believe that their possession play is so good and they keep the ball and they they play the opposition, uh, make them defend deeply, so the opposition have to counter-attack and can't counter-attack with enough pace. You know, I see it at Arsenal, I see it at Chelsea, I see it at at, at the top clubs. When you get good possession, your defensive responsibilities aren't, aren't highlighted quite so much. Yesterday, Everton put pressure on, on uh, Manchester United and Manchester United couldn't cope and they made poor decisions Ferdinand made poor decisions Evans made poor defi- decisions when to back off when to come for uh, Ra- Raphael at right back went to sleep on too many occasions when the ball got played past him didn't recover just he just looked out of sorts from the, on the day and it leads, it leads Fergie with, I mean fascinating decisions to make for, to, to, to go to Man City uh, you know where as Stuart says they're going to come under you know not just the same pressure as, as Everton but, but far more and I mean it's you know, even if Mancini um you know, doesn't pick um, the most attacking team, so it's going. I mean, it's 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 tougher for Ferguson because you know it's very hard for him to put any kind of midfield that screens and um, the defence because he just doesn't have that sort of player available. So, I mean, it's Fer- Fergie's uh, Fergie's team is going to be um, a fascination. Dicko, amongst all the the negativity and Fergie problems, should we celebrate? Um what were some ex- exceptional goals I thought uh, in this game um, I'm thinking of, of Welbeck took that strike extremely well um, there's a very nice almost poetic description of it by our colleague Ollie Kay in, uh, in, in the game today um, and also Rooney's goal with a 1-2 and, and, and of course uh I guess Fellaini's strike was a nice strike, but the other guy was also standing like five yards off him, and I always kind of feel like, you know what, if you're a professional footballer, you do this for a living, you really should be nailing that every single time. But um, 
the fact that these were very good goals, does this somehow like distort the fact that we don't expect to see so many good goals in a game, so it's really not a 4-4, so it really would have been maybe like a 2-2, something like that, and so we're more prone to criticize United, or am I grasping at straws here to defend Sir Alex? No, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of, you can just divorce the two. I mean, I mean the, the fact is some, some, some wonderful attacking play, and I, you know, it's great to see Welbeck um, in decent form. I, I, I think he's he's going to play for England this summer, and, um, you know, not necessarily because he's you know, ready or outstanding, but he's, he's, he's the best we've got, um, and particularly, um, you know, given given the way that the team's going to have to be set up. But, you know, I, I think there was some, some, some very, very shoddy defending and, and some excellent attacking play and the, the combinations between Rooney and Welbeck um, say with a with a, an England hat on were particularly encouraging. I think what, what Everton have shown and Wigan to an extent at, at the DW and Blackburn at Old Trafford, if you go to the big sides now, if you go to Arsenal, Chelsea, City, United and you try to attack you get something, they're all vulnerable. None of them are as high quality as they were. What Everton did yesterday, they surprised Manchester United, not just with their attacking play, but right from the start of the game, they said, we're going to pin you back. We're not going to let you have easy possession. We're not going to let De Gea throw it out to Ferdinand, and we're not going to drop off to the halfway. We're going to press you high up the field. What are you going to do about it? And Manchester United didn't know what to do about it. You have to play beyond the pressure and get it into the front place. Then Fellaini think, well, it's no good me pressing there because I keep being bypassed. It's no good the midfield pressing high because they get bypassed. So then they drop off, and then you've got space to play. Manchester United didn't do that. They played into Everton's hands. But then the, the reason they would they'd have been surprised is because Everton never do that at United. Everton under Moyes have always done for safety first, try and hold out, and they normally lose one nil. And obviously he's, he, he worked out this time a credit to, to Moyes, who isn't always the most decisive They're a much manager. better side, Everton, as well, when they do that. I've seen them come to Arsenal and play against Arsenal. When they press the ball, they, they give Arsenal a good game. When they drop off and let Arsenal play, they get they get humiliated at times. Alright, let's uh, try to um, do a little crystal ball thing which leads to uh, humiliation about the uh, the run-in um, with United and City. So we're all, we're all taking it as red that City beat United. If City beat United on Monday, then we've got uh, um, a run-in of, of two games. Yeah. Uh, United have Swansea at home and Sunderland away. City have uh, Newcastle away and uh, QPR at home. Um, Dicko, scenarios? Uh, I, I still have to favour United. Just um, easier running, right? Yeah, or well, slightly that, and you know, I mean, ultimately they can, you know, they can afford a draw at um, next Monday night, can't they? So you know, it's. I, I know, I but assuming, uh, assuming, uh, assuming City beat United, because I think well, that's a big assumption. That's a big assumption, though, isn't right. it? I mean, that's, but we're all yeah, assuming that, that United are going to are going to win the title. I mean, if I mean, if United, I just think I just think that you know the, the running the runnings. You know, it, it looks like you know, especially just simply down to the fact that City have got to go to Newcastle. That that gives them, you know, on paper the harder running. But I, you know, I think if I'm asking you for any prediction, I just look at Monday and think, well, if one team can afford a draw, then that that has to make them narrow favourites, even if it's even if the game's at City. Hey, Stuart. One thing when when we look at this, when we look at the runnings and we decide sort of what's tougher, playing Swansea and Sunderland, we always sort of. Um, I think imagine two things. We imagine whether the team has something to play for. And obviously, in City's case, both Newcastle and QPR, if they're not relegated or safe by that point, which they probably won't be, you know, both will have a lot to play for. And we look at whether 
there's some extra motivation there on the part of of the manager. Um, and yeah, Brendan Rodgers and Martin O'Neill at this stage of the season seem rather milk toast compared to somebody like Mark Hughes, who's got plenty of reasons to go and try to mess Manchester City up, as well as obviously keep his own job and do well for for QPR. Um, does that? Does that play into it at all, do you think? I mean, do, do managers with extra motivation, does that filter down to the players? Or is that just a, just a silly well, media narrative that we make up? I think so, because Sir Alex Ferguson will, will cast you back to the game where West Ham had already been relegated many seasons ago. And they played Manchester United, I think, on the last day of the season. And West Ham came out and played brilliantly and beat Manchester United. Or certainly got a, they might have even got a draw. And Sir Alex Ferguson said their et- effort and attitude was disgusting because they'd been relegated relegated by you know six or seven points but still put in a magnificent display on the last day of the season to to get something out of Manchester United I think it put the title to Blackburn I think on that occasion so at home when you're playing at home it doesn't matter whether you haven't got anything to play for when you're playing in front of your own fans you have to play and Sunderland will have to play they will have to put a lot of heart and soul into that game and they will play with passion against Manchester United I was at Fulham Wigan on, uh, on Saturday the game this weekend that everyone's talking about and Martin Yol referred to it, to the fact that he's kept his players motivated despite the fact that Fulham are basically fighting to finish either ninth or 11th as the trick of the wizard, which is quite a nice turn of phrase and slightly self-aggrandising, which appeals to me. And I think, to be fair to Brendan Rodgers and, and Martin O'Neill, they're both capable of pulling off that trick. Rodgers has kept Swansea going. They've had peats and troughs, as, you, as, you, as you'd expect, but they're, they're easily safe. They're mid-table. But they're still, you know, they're still doing the right things and Martin O'Neill's sides never, ever let up. But guess what? Not much of a Southern bias uh, uh, this week because uh, uh, having been to Old Trafford, we're going to go to Newcastle where it's United and Stoke. And I kind of feel like this season we've been, except when we've had George Conkin on, we've been sort of praising Newcastle without fully really getting how they're top four in the table. Because let's all be honest, I don't know, out of all of us, does anybody here really rate Alan Pardew before he took over and think that he was a good manager who was going to do wonders with Chris Hewton. I, I certainly didn't. I thought the team was going to go downhill because Chris Hewton is good and going to be a good person. And Alan Pardew is Alan Pardew. No, I, well, I can say, I can. My, my, one, my one claim I can make here is that when, I mean, I thought a lot of the, I guess because people liked Hewton and the, the, the decision sort of came out of the blue, there was an awful lot of, of wailing at the time um, that this was a good man badly treated. But I mean, I, I did think it was an upgrade. I'm not going to go further than that and say uh, I therefore absolutely, I, I, you know, I have it a, a rag out that um, Newcastle would finish fourth in the um, in the title. But um, but no, I, I, I thought it, I thought it was um, potentially um, an upgrade, and, and I think say people were reacting more to the fact that. They thought Mike Ashley was a, um, a you know, some grubby um, brutish owner, and Chris Hewton was a nice guy. Than necessarily to whether the decision was the right one or the wrong one. But it, Dicko, what struck me about it was they had that great start, and I thought right, they're obviously going to tail off here, um, or, or revert to the mean. But then it seems that you know Ben Arfa getting consistent playing time after after his injury, getting back to his best, coupled with uh, with Papi Sisse coming in 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 January, all of a sudden just gave them this, this new unexpected boost, 
and there they are, and they're in serious danger of finishing. Well, that, I, mean, I mean, as you say, I mean, I think we all expected them to tail off at a, at a certain point. But I mean, well, you've, you've named the player. I mean, since they got is it eleven goals now since since January, which you know it's, it's a it's, it's a tally you'd be pretty you know acceptable for um, for the for the season. He's done it since January, so it's it's uh, you know well as you say, they, you know just just when we thought that they might um, sort of run out of steam, they've actually come up with you know fresh players playing absolutely exceptionally, um, fitting in with the system uh, and um, and giving them a, giving them a fresh boost. And, and to be honest, all of us who've kept saying surely they won't, surely they won't, are suddenly looking at the table thinking, well, may, maybe they might. I think as much credit as Newcastle deserve, and it's a, a huge amount of credit for the for the way the club's been run, which you never thought you'd say about Mike Ashley, the scouting system, the way they're playing. The other thing is that everyone else who should have been in contention for fourth have been horribly inconsistent. I mean, no, with, without you're saying, sorry, you should jump in there, right? You're saying everyone else, as if Newcastle should have been one of those ties, sides contending for No, fourth. no, they shouldn't. But you get to sort of November and they'd had a good start. And as you say, we all expected them to tail off. I think in a web chat, I ruled them out of finishing fourth because it wasn't worth discussing whether they would, which I, I now regret somewhat. But you would have thought that one of Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs or even Liverpool would have kicked on and got a great... I mean, I don't know what the points tally will be this season, but I suspect it's not going to be very high to finish fourth. If Spurs don't collapse, Newcastle don't finish fourth. But I saw them I, I saw them live uh, at Stoke on, on Saturday. And for the first 15 minutes, I was I was thinking to myself, what is their game plan? I couldn't see what their game plan was. They were, it was, um, they were playing balls into the front that weren't particularly good and they were dropping off deep and trying to play into midfield and that wasn't quite working. Then they scored the goal. The crowd suddenly get behind behind them and then you see the quality of their players and the, the thing about Barr and Cissé they, what they do is they look to get turned they give the ball away cheaply at times but whenever it comes into their feet they're looking to get turned to play the next ball forward they're looking to get turned to run down the sides of defenders and in Kabai playing behind the main striker he was absolutely sensational in terms of his passing in terms of his vision in terms of the timing of his runs when he got forward and he had the perfect foil in, in Teote who gets on the ball off the back players and he'd play little one two around pressure and switch the play I thought they were outstanding for a good hour they didn't play very well in the first 15 minutes they went off the boil in the last 15 minutes but that 60 minutes they were absolutely outstanding Yeah, and on, on Rory's point I mean they are going to get I mean 60 Arsenal had 68 um, 68-ish points last um, season and they're going to well, yeah they're on course they're on okay. course for that so I agree I mean I agree with Rory that you know I mean it, it is a, a measure of Tottenham's collapse um, Arsenal's um, you know early season um, woes etc et but it's um, yeah it, they're doing it on their own merits oh yeah and I not, don't want to diminish their achievement at all and the other thing that this will appeal to Gab's sort of desire to create some sort of Italian style north-south divide in, in England the number of southern managers who've it's because I've created it and it was never no, there before you're trying to make it trying to politicise it Gab we can all see see your agenda the number of southern managers who've gone to the big industrial northern clubs and succeeded are very very is very very low and that's a measure of Pardew's achievement but that he's gone to a completely different culture and achieved what achieved what he's done this season you're making it seem as if he's moved to Mongolia or something no there's a yeah, massive cultural fun. difference if you can name me another southern manager who's done well at a big northern club who's not Harry Bassett I don't know. You guys all seem foreign in English to me. I don't generally distinguish between north and south um, the way in the way you do. But uh, but yes. But by the way, if people out there, if you want to hit us up on Twitter with with names of southern managers who've done well um, up north, please do. And our, our resident Yorkshireman here will uh, will no doubt be thankful. Um, I, I just want to go back a second to Yoran Kabai here because all right. 
I, I obviously I, I follow European football. I knew who the guy was, and he was playing for Lille. And he, he actually changed his position. He was playing deeper for Lille this uh, last season, but he played in a more attacking role and scored a fair few goals. And, and I thought, wow, he's a you know, technically gifted player. He's got a bit of an edge because he played in a, in a deeper position last year. Um, you can get him for five and a, was it five and a quarter million something like that because it was a buyout clause. Yeah, why not? It was probably, probably a, a good signing. I didn't expect that he would be this good, but it seemed like a bit of, of, of a no-brainer. He's playing for the French champions, for mm-hmm. goodness sakes. And, and I think this season he's been absolutely... Th- 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 those, those passes... Um, when we talked about this uh, about this yesterday, Stuart, well, that's uh, a, I mean, if, if this guy if this guy were English or playing for a club other than Newcastle, would he would he have been in the Player of the Year contention? I'm sure he would have been because uh, as a midfield player, he seems to have everything. He's competitive. You know, get his foot in. He's he chased around. He was the first one to close people down on on Saturday as well against Stoke when when they were playing with one up front and the bar went into a wide area and they had two centre halves. Obviously, Stoke and the spare player. It was Goodbye who ran from midfield to go and close one of the centre halves. Then so he showed that he's got a d- determined side. And then when he had the ball, the pass that he produced for, for Cissé's goal was magnificent because he's, he's looking at us it looked as though a switch of play was on and suddenly he sees, he sees Cissé out the corner of his eye just make the little run I've watched it again and again to see who made the first uh, initial move was it the pass or was it the run it was slightly the run but to change his mind right at the last minute to play that pass was absolutely yes. and to wait it perfectly it, I mean it was, a, it was outstanding Dicko what's your view on this why is Kabai at five and a quarter million a risk and Craig Gardner I'm not picking on him either at five and a half or six or whatever much he cost, he's not a risk. Well, I guess I mean, if, if in, in terms of bringing a player over from from abroad, um, all that way from you know, um, a from hour Hill. train ride, train <laughs> ride, train, an hour train ride under a bit of sea. Um, no, but I mean, you know, sometimes it can take you know even the very best players. I mean, I'd say I, I still have um, my all-time cautionary tale is um, Robert Pires, who uh, you know I, I remember. Um, Slating in my wisdom, slating week after week. In Sorry, Dicko, if I jump in here, we're all really atoning today between between your admission that you thought Pires was rubbish and Rory saying that um, he had no faith in Newcastle's uh, ability to finish top four. Well, it's, it's, it's he's saying Pardew was going to be any good. It's a uh, hair shirt. It's a hair shirt. Flog yourself edition. It's um, exactly. Stuart, you're no, going to have to come up with well, you got I, I called. I called um, Alan Pardew when he got the job. Somebody asked me, "Do I think he's a good man?" I said, "I think he's a bit of a fraud." My quote. That's right. Yeah, but you just hate him because because he 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 messed up West Ham when he was there. Sorry, Dicko. Proceed. But no, but but uh, so where were we? But no, I, I mean you know sometimes you know of course there's an, there's an element of risk. As I say, if someone as, as classy as uh, Perez who began went on to become football of the year can um, just look completely at, at, at sea, just look. You know, uh, I mean, I, I guess he looked fragile um, with the pace of league, and that that should never have been a risk with goodbye. But um, now you know to. to, to Come from to, to the French champions at that price certainly doesn't look to be an outlandish risk. But you know, Newcastle five million quid for them um, in their transfer budget is, is, is quite a lot of money, um, I, but but very shrewdly spent. I saw Kabai for Lille when they played Liverpool in the Europa League in 2010. I would imagine, um, and he, along with Florent Balmont and uh, is it Abraniak, the left winger, Ludovic Abraniak, looked very good. Jovino was in that team. Eden Hazard, they, you know, Debussy. You could tell they're a good side. You could tell Trebai was a good player, but I don't think 
I think the risk element is that you had no idea that he would be as good in England as consistently as he is, especially because in France, they, there's a sort of theory that he bottles it a little bit, a little bit in big games. But, but the biggest but, thing... But can, if, can we put my England hat back on? Scott, VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Parker's going to sort him out in the Euros. Absolutely. It. It. With his power haircut. But the Stop biggest it. thing about Newcastle has been the fact they got rid of the players they needed to get rid of. Barton was a bad influence. In a, you know, they say he's a big character. He was a bad influence. Nolan had too much to say in the dressing room and didn't allow the managers probably to, to, to do what they wanted to do. And Carroll meant they had to play a certain way and was causing problems with other players, having fights with other players. Right. So by getting rid of those three players, Newcastle suddenly had a newfound team spirit. And yet, hey. conventional wisdom states that Kevin Nolan and Joey Barton are exactly the sorts of players you need in the Premier League as they're proven Premier League players, when in fact they're just a study in mediocrity. And what Newcastle have done is they've identified people who are big characters who are big names in England but actually aren't that good at football and they've replaced them with players who are a lot quieter who are much better at football and that is ultimately what matters um, I don't want to slight our friends in Stoke especially since uh, our producer Chris Skinner uh, despite being more of an Essex man himself he's got uh, relatives who are uh, from Stoke so uh, Stuart you, you saw the game I at this stage of the season, if you're Tony Pulis, if you've got, if, if you've got these players, you're, you're going to go, you're end up in a respectable finish again this year. What kind of stuff are you looking for in the last sort of four to six games of the season? You're not going to go down. You're not going to get into Europe. Are, are you starting to test things for next season? What, what, what's well, he doing? It, what I've, doing? I've watched Tony Pulis's teams for for the time they've been in the in the Premier League. Now, when they're at home, they play. Um, when they're away, they play a direct style of football. But for direct style of football to work, you have to have players around the knockdowns. If you go from back to front, you have to have midfield players. You have to have wide players. You have to have a second striker who's making forward runs, and then from the knockdowns you then start to play get it out wide and get crosses into the box when they play away from home by playing Peter Crouch up front by himself and Walters does try and make runs to get close to him but when he's got Shotton on the right hand side who's really a, a right back playing as a right winger and Etherington hardly getting a touch of the ball they were outplayed in midfield there was three versus two in midfield so they weren't going to con- gain control there so when they do win the ball back in their own half and they play it up to Peter Crouch he's had an impossible job to try and keep hold of it at some point Tony Pulis has got to come up with a game plan that is as good away from from home as it is at home and it, and it means they've got to play higher up they've got to play with the same intensity higher up the field Stoker in quite an interesting position though and it's, it's something that you sort of look at for the last two or three years that will there come a point where what they do and they do very well normally at home which will get them sort of 11th or 12th every year not without too much trouble but you'll see a lot of effort next next week will be their, one of yeah. their biggest efforts because Pulis hates Wenger with a passion <laughs> and he will do everything he possibly can to beat Arsenal I'm telling you Stay tuned for, for next week then. Right, this week in our debate, we're going to be talking about the, um, the Olympic team. 
it includes and on the on the short list of 80 names it includes people like Chris Brunt who I believe is from Northern Ireland which is not part of Great Britain it's part of the United Kingdom um, but anyway maybe Team UK is not as markable um, a term but um, I want to get a sense from you because there's so much negativity from those in the football establishment towards Olympic football, especially in this country. I'm sure at some point Rory K. Smith will tell us about how in South America they love Olympic football. Um, And I, I for one, can tell you how they love Olympic football in Africa. Here, it's just not the same thing. And on top of that is the fact that... um, Y'all haven't had an Olympic team for a long time until until this time around. Um, most normal countries, they the under twenty three, or at least the European ones, the under twenty one team is your Olympic team essentially. It's been like that um, for the last uh, three or four Olympics. Dicko, what's the purpose of of Olympic football? Can something good come out of it um, for? Uh, well, may, maybe for other maybe for other countries, um, country. but not. Well, no, no it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a point. It's, it's an entertainment business for us this summer as a one-off um, to throw some players together and pick David Beckham and, and have a bit of fun. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not going to win it, um, and we're not going to enter it again. So it's it's a complete one-off. There, sort of, there's this sort of obligation on us as hosts um, and a chance for us as hosts to, to play in it, and we're going to treat it as a bit of a joke, um, and um, and then we won't do it again. Um, um, and you know, people are getting very worked up about Beckham should be in it or not. I mean, to be honest, I because of where we're at and because it's this one-off, um, and because I'll be taking my kids, um, I actually think, oh great, I'm quite looking forward to taking my kids to see David Beckham have a last hurrah because I'm not taking it very seriously. But um, you know, say that's because we're in this rather unique situation where it's a, com- a complete one-off. With we're not rehearsing for this tournament. We're throwing a, a Welsh player and a Scots player and a Northern Irish player in there to. To sort of make it feel like it's GB, um, uh, you know, whereas other nations will take it seriously and good luck to them. Correction, you're throwing the Northern Ireland player in there to make it feel like it's UK, not GB. Um, and I wish at some point somebody would explain it to, to Seb Co and, and the rest of the those types. Um, is I mean, story Dicko lineup. I think explain the way it is. Is that the way it? It should be? No, not at all, because uh, you see so many uh, Olympians, they have to train to their maximum, they have to fight to get into the Olympic team. Now we're, we're saying that the Olympic football tournament is a bit of a joke and a, and a good bit of fun, you know, and then we can let David Beckham have the last hurrah. He shouldn't be in anywhere near the squad. Well, the rules do call for three over age. Yeah, but there must be better under over 23-year-olds that are, are, are more, that, that will give something more than David Beckham rather than just fill in the stadium, because you know, how do other athletes feel? Who, who said there was people that ran the marathon yesterday to try and qualify to get into the Olympics, into the Olympic team, and just failed. How do they think? How do they feel that the the UK team or the GB football team are taking it as a bit of a joke? Yeah, the, the interview with Lee, with Lee was it Lee Merry and the the marathon runner who finished seventeenth along the marathon, which is a lot better than, than our producer Chris. Uh, and just just outside the qualifying time, the interview with him was absolutely heartbreaking. It really was worse than watching Terry Terry Connor give a post just because he'd worked so hard and trained so hard and come so close and failed. Come on, Dab, have a heart. And well, I I'm sorry, I, I, I actually, you know, people try very hard and work very hard at many different things uh, all the time uh, to do with their livelihood, actually. This guy is an amateur. 
right? So, hey, so he trained very hard, got some sponsors to pay for him to train to go to the Olympics. Oh, look, he didn't make the qualifying time. Why? Because somebody, something conspired against him? No, because there were enough other people who were better than him. I, I honestly, I, I don't feel sorry exactly. for your friend. Exactly, but there's other people that are better than David exactly. Beckham that should be in the football team. I think, but, no, I, but the thing is, I mean, we're treating this, I mean, the fact is that FIFA and, FIFA and the IOC have got to take some blame this as well. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a contrived tournament. I mean, say, uh, no doubt someone will try and I've read pieces sort of convincing me that it's, you know, integral to... So to why is it a contrived cards. tournament when well, it's older well, than the World Cup and the European Championship? Well, well, the, 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 because the establishment of three three over age... I mean, what sort of tournament do you have where you have, well, under right. 23s plus you add three? I mean, okay, it, can, can, it, I, I've, I've studied this at length, um, not to sound all professorial here, and I know you know, but just for those who don't know, uh, maybe I should take a little detour and explain how we got to this, how we got to this situation. So, um, originally, uh, in, in the, the, the dawn of time when the first Olympic tournaments started up, they didn't really make a distinction between amateurs and professionals. They kind of assumed that everybody was amateur and professional was just a way to keep certain people who got paid uh, out of the Olympics and tragic stories like Jim Thorpe and, and, and so on, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with. Um, once they made that, once they started policing this more closely, um, in really with the '52 Olympics in um, Finland, uh, Helsinki, yeah. Um, that's when they started making a distinction between amateur sides and professionals, and that's when teams started having a problem of who they would send, and everybody kind of made their own. Uh, well, first you started actually sending amateurs. Um, teams in Eastern Europe, of course, just kept sending their, their, their national sides because they said, no, look, we're all out of uh, amateurs here in the Soviet Union. Uh, and so they started outperforming a lot of others. Um, eventually, they kept reaching certain um, certain compromise solutions for a long time. As you could send any player who hadn't been capped for the national team, but he might be a professional. Um, until eventually we reached this situation where FIFA wanted it to be an under-23 tournament. Um, the IOC said, no, you got to give us some guys because this is really, uh, it's a really big tournament, uh, especially to, to nations in Africa um, and, and South America. And so we've reached a situation where you can have three overage players. Uh, three overage players, you would think, and in some cases this is the case, well, we get our three best senior internationals. Now it's turned into, uh, we want to reward this guy, and this guy brings publicity, and, and so on. Well, that, that's how we got there, Dicko, basically. Yeah, it is. That's but what you have a problem it's, with. It, but it's, well, I mean, you know, it's, I just don't, it's just a bit, I, I mean, I think it's more of a sort of, you, you're right, explain how we got there, but I think it's just a fudge between, obviously, between an IOC that wants some stardust on the tournament, and, and the overage players give them a chance at that, and, and FIFA, who don't want it to clash directly with a World Cup or, or, or an under-21 championship, so it's a, a contrived fudge, which doesn't you know? Well, who wants to who wants to be part of a tournament that's a contrived fudge? Um, so you know, I have a problem with you know football being in the Olympics at all. I have a problem with the format. Why do you have a problem with football being in the Olympics at all? Well, because it's you know, as as we you know, we've talked to, uh, touched on a bit there about the marathon runner, but I mean I think the Olympics should be the pinnacle of any sport, and I just uh, the, the Olympics has got bloated, and I don't think football should be part of it. I think it it should be, you know, golf shouldn't be there, football shouldn't be there, tennis shouldn't be there, all sorts of sports shouldn't be there. Um, but but sorry, it's not what, about what, it's not about proving the best in the world. So what what on you know you are proving the best under twenty three player plus a, you know, no 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 I, I, under twenty three team plus a few others. I, Tico, I, I, I can see argument for, for football in, in the current format, uh, you know, not being there if you, if you think, because it is a bit of a fudge. 
But let's say we were to move the Euros to an odd-numbered year or, or there was some other solution whereby the Olympic tournament, could, people could send their senior sides. If, if but they, they haven't, qualified. they can't at the moment. Just, no, 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 if they no. could, though, if, 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 if they could, would you still have a problem? Would you still sort of blanket, say, these sports like tennis, like yeah, football I, should yeah, not be yeah, in the Olympics? Yeah, I still, I still think uh, I went to some Olympic football in Beijing. It didn't, it, it didn't do it for me. I, you know, it, it didn't feel. You know, fans turn up. Um, but but why? They turn up, they turn up for all sorts of. They turn the fans turn up for anything. It's 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 not, it's not. Uh, it's it not what I associate with the Olympics. It's not what I feel the Olympics is about because it is not, and never will be, because the, the calendar will never work. About proving who is the best football team out there. It's about proving who is the best, you know, um, team that some someone can cobble together for a tournament that that is doesn't seem to be proving a point at all. I, and I agree with Dicko generally. I think that, that tennis, golf, football, any sport where the pinnacle arrives outside of the Olympics shouldn't be in the Olympics because it. Did tracks from the achievements of others. That said, I think the way that Team GB are approaching it is abominable. I really do. I think this, the tokenism, not just of chucking in you know, one Northern Irish fellow, one Scottish fellow, although I, do, I would suggest that Stephen Fletcher will prove himself to be the greatest striker in the world on this stage this summer, is, is stupid. The fact that Beckham's even under consideration is an absolute joke. Just because it shouldn't be there doesn't mean it isn't obviously we might as well take it relatively seriously does it something to be fair that you thought well, the problem is, 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 is it's going to be a, a somewhat of a GB team every other nation Argentina see it as one of their big development tournaments I mean they're not in it this time but Brazil see it as one of their big development they play under 17 World Cup they play under 20 World Cup and they then the next one for them the is the Olympic is the Olympic tournament or the pre-Olympic as they call it yeah the Olympic tournament and then the World Cup they, and they see it as a massive part of their development but because we haven't got an English team we can't use it as a development. Well, if you look at the way the Uruguayans are, not to bring it back to South America, predictably, Gab, but the way the Uruguayans are approaching it, Godin wants to go, Lugano wants to go, Suarez wants to go. They want to play in this tournament. They will send their under-23 side, which I think is pretty pretty special anyway, and probably their three best senior internationals. But given given that you know, you accept that we're you know, we're sort of doing a politically correct team by sticking a Scotsman, a a Welshman, whatever in there. I mean, why don't we just go whole, whole hog and put Beckham in there and and uh, you know, just you know, if we're going to be contrived about the rest of it, then what's 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 the offence with putting Beckham in as well? Well, I don't think it has to be that contrived. As, I mean, Gareth Bale would be in there anyway. Fletcher, to be honest, and, and a, a lot of people won't agree with me. There's an argument that Fletcher might have a chance of getting in there because he's he's not a bad striker. The Northern Irish may be slightly more of a problem, but it's not that much tokenism to send out your strongest team. It's not. It's not beyond the realms of possibility. Would you feel better about this if England wasn't in, or this country wasn't in this sort of strange situation where it's four nations and four FAs, but one actual physical country, and you've got all this sort of confusion about it? Would you? Would, you, would it be easier for you to wrap much your heads easier. around? Much easier if it, if it was a, an English side going into it. That would. That would no, no, not an English side. But what if we got rid of the other FAs and you actually all became one country, the way a lot of people within FIFA would want you to be? Do you be less happen. unruly? What? It's never going to happen, though, is it? Says who? Alex Salmond. <laughs> Alex, yes, I was going to say. Right. But, I mean, Dicker, we've been through this. I mean, at some point, for us who aren't, you know, aren't blessed with, with aren't British, it's difficult for us to understand how you can be one and four at the same time and still want that when it, when it, when it, when it comes to sport. Well, it's not. It's, I mean, it's, 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 and, you know, as Roy uh, alludes to with uh, Alex Salmon, I mean, it, you know, things might be heading the other direction, never mind um, 
um, sort of con- conjoining us. But why? You know, there's separate leagues, separate associations for you know decades and centuries. Um, you know. Well, just because a few guys at FIFA would like to sort of get rid of our historical rights, and maybe we should just surrender those historical rights. So to be honest, all, all they do is wind everyone up, and all we get to do is have no influence about, you know, bringing in whether we can bring in extra officials or not, or um, change change the rules on snoods um, <laughs> at, at, at IFAB. You know, I mean, all, you know, it's, it's it's we get all the association with being a bunch of stuck-up um, people who sort of think we have a historical right to run the game and. And no power out of it. <laughs> I, I think that's about as eloquent as uh, as anyone could have put it on this uh, St. George's Day. All right, time now for some quick hits. Chelsea's B team, all told, got the job done at the Emirates, and none other than Arsene Wenger says they can humble Barca. Uh, Rory, was it the right strategic decision to rest so many guys ahead of the Champions League? And is the £750,000 bonus Roman Abramovich is offering Di Matteo if he wins the Champions League uh, somewhat cheap and chintzy given the magnitude of the achievement? I don't think it is, given that if he wins the Champions League, he'll also presumably have to pay him three or four million pounds a year to be his full-time manager. He uh, could sack him if he wanted to. If they win the Champions League, he won't... Surely, even Abramovich can't sack him. Although I'm so that you never know. Um, was it the right decision? I think it was. Although it's a massive risk, and it, it was a lose-lose situation. Chelsea aren't a young side; they'll need fresh legs to, to cover the wide open spaces of the new camp, which are six metres less long and five metres less wide than the wide open spaces of the Emirates. Uh, but I think he didn't really have a choice. Is it really that much? Or did yeah, you just make those numbers up. No, the Emirates I think is six metres longer than the new camp and five metres thinner. I think. It's a much, much bigger pitch. Much bigger pitch. Because they say the new Camp is uh, only one metre wider than Chelsea's ground and one and two metres longer, yeah, I think. The, the problem with that is that you can spin, again, spin the fitters how you want. That's 220 square metres, which sounds a lot, a lot more than, than one metre longer, two metres wider. But the Emirates not really, it's just like a giant L-shaped slice at the edge of the pitch. It's the, not really... Like, the em- it's 10 metres squared per person, which is the size of the average bedroom. Six points out of a possible 27 for Harry Redknapp's Spurs after the defeat at QPR. Uh, Stuart, you're entirely impartial of this one, too. How much of the blame goes to Harry Redknapp? And if the FA had a short list, which I'm sure they don't since they've told us that they don't, um, should they be reconsidering Redknapp's position on the list? No, I don't think they should be reconsidering really considering it. Um, as you said, I'm not sure he's on the shortlist, but I'm told that he's not. he doesn't do too much coaching. I'm told that he isn't, hasn't got great tactical acumen. It's a bit of a worry when your, your head coach is going to be uh, somebody like that. Uh, he took a lot of praise for how they did in the early part of the season, and that was probably over the top, and he's taken a lot of criticism for how they've played recently. Has he taken a lot of criticism? Oh, I think he did uh, in, in recent times, he has. I think the real problem for... Uh, Tottenham, they lost confidence at about 20 past whatever the time was, 20 past four on a on a Sunday afternoon when they were 2 up against Arsenal and suddenly Arsenal came back into the game. Having been so good defensively, suddenly they concede five goals. From that moment on, they've been a different side. And if you haven't got a centre forward who works hard, like Addy Boyer doesn't work hard week in, week out, and Defoe doesn't work hard week in, week out, and Van der Vaart doesn't work hard enough to defend when they haven't got the ball, you're going to have a problem. Gabriele, one for you. Uh, Real Madrid win 2-1 at Barcelona and all but lock, lock up the Spanish title. Your thoughts, and since he was there, unlike you, uh, let's get Dicko's as well. I have no television, I'll have you know. Um, 
I, I, I think uh, in some ways Mourinho uh, got the monkey off his back with uh, with this one. It was 10 attempts to beat Barcelona before this, and uh, even though, and if you discount the one that came in extra time, it was zero wins, five draws, and five defeats. That's not good. Um, but Real Madrid actually just played their own game, and it was left to Pep Guardiola to make all the adjustments and tinker with the formation and leave out Pique and, uh, and, and Alexis Sanchez and Cesc Fabregas and maybe overthink this one uh, a little bit. And um, Real Madrid punished them. No, I agree. I thought. I thought. I mean, I, um, even five ten minutes in, I just we were dumbfounded really a bit by by the the, the, the setup midfield setup of Barcelona. It's this sort of bizarre box shape with Thiago and, and Busquets that are deep, and and it, it basically pushed Xavi and Iniesta forward, so that they were basically sort of parked um, right next to Kadir and Alonso, and it absolutely lost all their usual fluidity. Lots of you know, Tello out way out wide left, um, isolated, Messi. Isolated, and uh, you know the the empire is hardly hardly crumbling. That's two defeats in a row for the first time in three years, and a, just a sliver of doubt. It was Teo's third ever league start for um, for Barcelona. I, I just wonder how many managers in the world would have the, the, the intestinal fortitude to go and start somebody in a third ever game against their biggest rival in a match that could decide the title. Yeah, the, the issue with Barcelona, the broader issue, I think, is, and Dicko, as he's just out there, his, his tactical breakdown of what's wrong with Barcelona in the paper today is absolutely superb. But the issue with Guardiola is, has he let the philosophy dominate the, the pragmatism? Their squad is paper thin apart from the youth team products, Martin Montoya, Teo, Cuenca, and all of whom look very, very raw. You do wonder whether maybe there are a couple of players short. I don't think it's fair to say that they're finished or that they're not, you know, that the magic's rubbed off or anything like that. But a couple of extra senior players in the summer would have made a huge difference, as would have fully fit David Villa. Well, I think Villa is crucial. I mean, the finishing, the finishing, as we've seen, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's hardly lack goals this season, but the last two games at critical times, the finishing's been four and you, you, uh, it has been poor, and you really could see, you know, Villa, you would have put your money on Villa um, scoring the chances that uh, Taylor missed on Saturday and, and Fabregas missed um, at Stamford Bridge. Okay, so I note that you're spending all this time. Um poking holes and, and saying what was wrong with Barcelona rather than celebrating Real Madrid. Uh, Stuart, and I'm let me give you thrilled for this, is, this is extremely upsetting to certain people. Um, Stuart, you have a chance to, to, to set this right. Well, Mourinho is still the best coach in the world. He's the best tactical coach in the world. He, he's, a, he's one of the coaches that goes out on the training field and works day in, day out. And he concentrates on when the ball uh, changes hands. That is key to any sort of uh, winning formula. When the ball changes hands, you have to either attack very quickly or you have to defend very quickly. And Real Madrid did that against Barcelona. They stopped Barcelona playing and they also looked threatening on the counter. Well done, Real Madrid. You're on your way to your 30-second title. That's all we've got time for this week. But before I let you go, please hear me out because I'm going to say something different at the end of this podcast. Yes, I'm going to be telling you that we're going to be doing another live roadshow with me and also some very, very special TBD guests. It's going to be at the Freemasons Arm, which is, uh, um, what is that? Is that some kind of a pub or drinking establishment? It sells booze. 
What about there's some people who don't sell drink. soft drinks? Okay. All right, there's uh, so you can get a, you can get an alcoholic beverage, you can get a non-alcoholic beverages. Um, that's right near Covent Garden in Central London. It's going to be on May 29th uh, from around 7 p.m. And you can book your tickets at www.timestickets.co.uk. Yes, that's timestickets.co.uk. That's rather intuitive. Or you can also call 0871 620 4025. The event will only set you back seven pounds and fifty p ahead. Um, but those of us who who came to uh, our last event will hopefully um, be able to uh, confirm that it is value for money. In the meantime, of course, you can go to thetimes.co.uk. You'll find your news, your gossip, your analysis. You can follow all of us on Twitter, except for uh, Stuart Robson, uh, the man uh, trapped in 2004. Um, Till next week, bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.